You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Ian Seabrook. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. What you do, this very specialist branch of cinematography, which also you're a director as well, they call it the director of photography, but you have to be doing all these things in the moment. I would just love to uh, ask you about your journey and what drew you to this very special branch? Have you always been in love with oceans and the sea? Yes, when I was young, I watched a lot of uh, sort of Disney or National Geographic or, you know, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. I watched a lot of that and I was enamored with the whole underwater world, all the marine mammals that were associated with it and in it, swimming around in it. And, you know, James Bond film like Thunderball, for example, would always pay attention to, you know, like everyone, you try to hold your breath as long as he's holding his breath for or what have you. But and then it became, you know, fascination with finding out how things work, you know, taking apart tape recorders and looking at cameras and saying, what happens if I unscrew that? Much to my parents' chagrin, of course. But so that sort of inquisitiveness as to how things were done led to, you know, when watching these films, thinking, how did they do that? Around the same time, I I got interested in photography, and I started learning how to develop negatives in in a dark room. And, you know, just black and white or color or, you know, the, the differences between slide film and print film, stuff like that. And, you know, also in the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, I'd still like to try that underwater because, I, you know, looking through National Geographic, you would have seen a lot of different whales, sharks, dolphins, reefs, what have you, throughout all the issues. And my parents had a subscription. So every month I was always like kind of pouring over them all. So when I was living in Australia for a couple of years and I got certified on the Great Barrier Reef with the, the PADI certification and they had a rental place that nobody else on the boat was interested in. They were all, it was more of a party boat, I guess, but I was the only one who rented the camera housing. It was a small little Instamatic camera, but I knew enough to put slide film in it, not just print film, because I wanted to try to do something with the, the slides afterwards. And um, and so either have a slideshow or, you know, make dupes or something. So and I just felt the opportunity was better for that with the slide technology anyway at the time. And so went down, took photos of the reef, and uh, I still have the photos you know, it's a lot of it is dead coral and stuff like that. But, you know, when you're learning how to dive, it, a lot of it looks pretty amazing. It's only after you have experience when you go down and say, oh, geez, this has all been decimated or, or you notice the changes. But at the time when you're brand new, you're sort of like, wow, the fact that you can breathe underwater is amazing in itself. So obviously I was even more interested after, after attempting to take photos underwater that I saved up enough money and bought a purpose-built Nikon underwater camera called the Nikonos, which Jacques Cousteau developed with Nikon. So that in itself got you used to where to point the camera uh, at what. And a lot of all the underwater photography I was doing at that point was everyone, of course, wants to have the same photos that you're going to get in National Geographic, but been really unaware of the time uh, that it takes to get those photographs and the fact that Out of, say, 42 or 60 exposures, three of those, if that, are going to be good enough for the photo editors. So you figure that it's just easy, you know, I mean, anyone would just think that it's easy just to go down, take the photos, and and whatever you're going to get is going to be print worthy, but it's absolutely not the case. So 
as I started to develop more interest, I got a proper SLR Nikon with proper lenses. By proper, I mean, you know, professional level. And then I um, bought a, a housing that that camera would go in because that's basically how everyone was shooting. And it's not that I wanted to be uh, a professional underwater photographer because I talked to a, enough of them to know that it was very difficult to make a living at it because it was you were constantly having to write the story on the on the article you had to either have a marine biology background or you had to link with someone who knew what the fish genuses were or the marine mammals or whatever the pelagics you were photographing were so it's not just a question of jumping in the water and snapping away Although at the time I was thinking that the photos that were in some of these dive mags were not quite to the quality of the National Geographic photographers. And again, it was like, well, why is that? So again, it's figuring out or trying to figure out why um, one photograph is better than another. At the same time, as I was doing all that, I was starting to get into the film industry. I worked as an unpaid uh, camera intern. When I was in film school, I also shot the short film, directed the commercial and shot the documentary. So I knew that the camera was what I wanted to go after. And all those years of playing with still cameras and developing the film in the dark room and so on and so forth, that that was the precursor to my interest in cinema cameras. So when I started working as an unpaid intern, it was the first thing I worked on was the American remake of La Femme Quita, the Luc Besson picture. And it was called Point of No Return. It had Bridget Fonda in it instead of Anne Perio. So I worked on the second unit and there was about five other people there who were also unpaid interns. We were all working weeks of nights in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. And we were all running around trying to out, out assist each other so that the assistants who were in the union would hire us later. It was very difficult to get into the union at that point in California. And so I was, I was working on some non-union or free stuff just to get to know people and to get to know the equipment. And, you know, you'd go to the rental houses and play with the cameras and stuff like that. But nowhere in there was there any underwater work because it was, you know, there was basically one person who was doing most of the work. And it was so, the works, the assignments were so infrequent that you couldn't really make a living from it. And also it just seemed impossible at that time to either get into the union or to undertake that job description. So I kept um, plugging away and I became a camera assistant after being an unpaid intern. And I did get into a training program for camera. And then I moved around a little bit and I ended up learning how to assist the underwater cinematographer on the surface. So I was the person who put the camera housing together and sealed it and made sure that it didn't leak. And I never had any leaks. So because I had had that film stills photography, underwater stills photography background of trying to reload film on boats with in current with waves splashing everywhere and not let the salt water completely sink the camera or splash or damage it or whatever. So I had already that background, which I felt helped me to be a better assistant with motion picture equipment. So the first thing I actually did shoot cinematography wise as an underwater DP was a Bud Light commercial in 1998 or so. After that, the first sort of feature film that I shot was a uh, Hellraiser sequel. I don't know, and I, I can't remember if it was four or five or what it was, but, and that again, it's a sequence that I've done several times since. It's took a couple that's trapped in a car 
who can't get out and the car stinking presented with the difficulty of one of the talent in the water being absolutely not comfortable in the water and would in no way go to the depths that the car was in, which was not all that deep. I think it was only sitting in 15 feet of water at the time in a pool. So we had to improvise and think, and how are we going to get this shot? Because we have to have her as part of the sequence and she doesn't want to um, partake. So we ended up you know, disassembling the car, pulling the doors off and seating her in a shallower section of the pool and basically like bolting the door using C-stand arms and just sort of supported the door and used a tighter lens that I normally would use to give the illusion that she was in the car. And then, you know, used a bunch of bubbles so you can't really see anything. If I look at it or if anybody really looks at it, they can tell that she's actually not in the car. But that's, that's how we got around the problem. So that first film that I had done, I, I still had to learn. And I did learn how to adapt when, you know, if, if the talent are not comfortable, they are driving the success of the sequence. If you don't have a talent in the water, then unless you're shooting nature or natural history films, if you're shooting talent in the water and, and they're not comfortable, then you really don't have a sequence unless you're going to be working with stunt doubles or body doubles or what have you. So, and that's still my primary concern when shooting anything, be it Jungle Cruise, it's always, this, it's the same. For sure, the oceans have changed a lot, and they've changed even more for people who were diving in the 50s and the 60s, kind of in, in you know the frontier days of diving, when there was there was a lot more fish in the water. As far as I just want to address, as far as the natural light issue is concerned, it is my belief, and I try to implement this on every job really it's that it looks natural i have worked on several superhero films where there's a suspension of disbelief so maybe there could be you know a green glow or a different color glow coming from beneath which is completely unnatural but you know if that's what the script calls for then that's what we have to do but moreover i always tend to think that the believability of the sequence is going to be more enhanced if it if it looks like the person is actually in that environment and so the audience members watching someone trapped, if it looks like there's weird glowing lights and stuff, they're going to be like, well, that's obviously, I think it'll pull them out of the film. So my favorite cinematographer of all time was Robbie Mueller, who did all the, a lot of work with Ben Benders and Jim Jarmusch and um, Repo Man with Alex Cox. Now, Robbie was a master of natural light and being able to man manipulate that in any of the films his films are still being referenced for that work that he did. And although I never worked for him, and although there were never any underwater sequences in any of the films that he worked on or shot, that doesn't matter because I think influences will either affect or deter from your workflow or your own personal work. So, you know, I've Robbie Mueller, as James Noctway, who's a combat photographer, Andrew Wyeth, uh, painter, Andrew Alec Colville, Alex Colville, painter from Canada, Howard Hall, a natural history filmmaker who made a lot of IMAX pictures and also his own films. So these are all the people that I draw um, inspiration from. And before I roll the camera, all their influences are still, you know, kind of rolling around my head. And then the decisions that you make with your composition, your lighting, your framing, you know, they are going to affect that. So if you're, uh, I, I feel that anyway. I mean, Everybody, you know, many photographers have been influenced by Ansel Adams. It doesn't mean that they always, they try to copy him or that they, they try to emulate his work. It's an influence is one thing, you know, 
copying is another, but basically I do try to make it as natural as possible. And if we're in a tank environment, that's usually just having a, a surface source, a heavy surface source, and then augmenting with underwater fixtures. I tend to only augment. I don't want to have it look sourcey. So that again, it pulls the audience out of the sequence. For anyone who's diving now and they're thinking that it's magnificent, you know, when I when I started diving, I was thinking, wow, this is amazing, as I was mentioning before. But then the people who some of who were influencers for me who had been diving in the 60s were like, yeah, this is nothing compared to what it used to be like. So overfishing and pollution for sure. When I see films like The Cove or there's another picture that Louis Sahoya is the director of that uh, film made the name is escaping me but it was mostly about environmental impact on fishing and trying to re-educate certain cultures either thailand or uh, i'm not gonna you know i'm just saying that thailand is an example i'm not saying that they're like the number one violators but basically it was trying to educate people who you know, fishing is what they do for a living. It's what they've always done. They don't know anything different for, to, make a, to make a living. And so when Sean Heinrichs is an underwater photographer, he went there and he showed them what the manta rays look like in their own environment and how beautiful the whole experience is. And, and I think a lot of the fishermen, it was kind of foreign to them. So when they saw that, he said, well, now you can change. You could, you could turn your boats into tours for manta ray either photographers or people who want to be with them in the water instead of fishing them. You could still make your living as a boating captain or with your boats and your business is not going to die because the fishing is going to go away. So it's just really uh, altering the mindset with that sort of thing. And, you know, every year there's certain seafood that I won't eat because I've been in the water with them. I never eat octopus. And not only that, I've never really enjoyed it in my mouth anyway, but for me, once I've been in the water with a lot of these species, it's just difficult for me to, in, in the mindset to, you know, chow down on them or in, in, to continue doing that. So I think sustainable fishing practices are an absolute necessary and necessity for anyone who's diving now and they're thinking that it's magnificent you know when i when i started diving i was thinking wow this is amazing as i was mentioning before but then the people who some of who were influences for me who had been diving in the 60s were like yeah this is nothing compared to what it used to be like so overfishing and pollution for sure when i see films like the cove or there's another picture that louis sahoya is the director of that uh, film made the name is escaping me but it was mostly about environmental impact on fishing and trying to re-educate certain cultures either thailand or uh, i'm not gonna you know i'm just saying that thailand is an example i'm not saying that they're like the number one violators but basically it was trying to educate people who you know, fishing is what they do for a living. It's what they've always done. They don't know anything different to make a, to make a living. And so when Sean Heinrichs is an underwater photographer, he went there and he showed them what the manta rays look like in their own environment and how beautiful the whole experience is. And, and I think a lot of the fishermen, it was kind of foreign to them. So when they saw that, he said, well, now you can change. You could, you could turn your boats into tours for manta ray 
either photographers or people who want to be with them in the water instead of fishing them. You could still make your living as a boating captain or with your boats and your business is not going to die because the fishing is going to go away. So it's just really uh, altering the mindset with that sort of thing. And, you know, every year there's certain seafood that I won't eat because I've been in the water with them. I never eat octopus. And not only that, I've never really enjoyed it in my mouth anyway. But for me, once I've been in the water with a lot of these species, it's just difficult for me to, in the, in the mindset to, you know, chow down on them or in, in, to continue doing that. So I think sustainable fishing practices are an absolute necessary and necessity. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.